Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. For this week's episode, we're packing our bags and heading across the Atlantic to America because we're going to be talking to businessman Simon Dolan about his new book, Trump, The Hidden Halo. Simon's new book is all about the legacy of this most controversial president and whether we should be looking at him a little bit differently. Should we? Well, let's hear it from Simon himself. Welcome. Simon Dolan, welcome to the Virtual Bite Back podcast. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for, for coming on. Um, we're here to talk about your book, Trump, The Hidden Halo, which is out. And uh, I wanted to kind of get the ball rolling, as it were, by asking you why you decided to write it. Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting story, really. So I've never, well, I wasn't up until maybe 2015 interested at all in American politics and, and not really very much in UK politics, you know, only in so much as it affects your own life, I guess, mm. like most people. But I'd always had a sneaking suspicion that politicians on the whole seemed to me to be quite um, not, not particularly good at doing their job. Um, and, I, and I often wondered, because I'm a businessman myself, I often wondered whether a business person could, could do a better job than the, than the usual politicians. And so, of course, then when when Trump started running in um, in the U.S. in '15, you think, oh, hang on a minute, you know, there's a there's a chance that maybe this this uh, this idea will get tested out. Uh, won't that be fascinating? And then, of course, you you see how the media laid into him, and you know, and all of Hollywood, and well, we, we you know we know the story of of how he was denigrated over the time, but of course, he won. And then when um, I was actually in London, and uh, I woke up in a hotel room in uh, 16 when he won the election and then uh, and I was looking at it from from you know, from the states and from here as well and uh, and you saw news anchors almost in tears because he'd won and you thought oh this is really big and I must admit I was really excited at that point and so then when you when when I saw what was what was going on and you know how he how he did things and how he was pulled apart by the media and how the Dems never accepted the election result you know over all those years um, I got to thinking about probably just just before before the whole lockdown thing. I got to thinking, well, you know, maybe I should sort of sit down and, and analyze what's happened over the course of the last four years and how did he do. So it, it, without kind of getting into uh, into the media narrative, because obviously if you look at you know almost all media around the world, they'll tell you he was terrible and awful and this and that and the other. But wouldn't it be interesting to see how he actually did? And so that was where the idea of writing the book came from, was just to, just to have an impartial view of, of what he did right and, and what he did wrong and, um, you know, and what the possibilities might be for the future. And when I started writing it, uh, it was he was going to landslide the, the, uh, the re-election. And of course, we all, we all know what happened as I, you know, as I was writing the book. Obviously, COVID started and you had the reactions to that and then all the things that were going on. So... Um, the book was going to be very much a celebration of what was going to happen in his second term uh, and of course it all went very differently as we know yeah there's one thing uh i've learned about u.s politics over the past five years is that it can be very unpredictable um, yeah, yeah i do remember uh i think i was thinking i was doing a publishing internship and yeah going to bed thinking clinton would win and waking up for the realizing that trump had won and just the absolute sense of like i guess stunned being gobsmacked like oh wow this has actually happened it doesn't feel quite real um yeah. it's, like, it's very hard to have an impartial conversation about trump because he is such a divisive figure 
Uh, and you say, yeah, at the start of your book, that Trump kind of sparked your interest in politics. Um, so I kind of, I think you've touched on this a little bit already, but what, what really, what appealed to you about, about him? About him as an individual? Um, Always a businessman, you can say. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, he's obviously a very successful businessman, you know, whatever you, whatever you think of his personality. And this is what, what people don't seem to be able to understand is, is there's a big difference between someone's personality and what someone achieves. Uh, and, and, and when you look at, Donald Trump, you know, you'd either love him or hate him, I guess, which is what it, why he divided America so much. Um, evidently, a lot more people loved him than, hate, than hated him in the end, but um, by the by. So what do I like about him as an individual? Well, I don't, I don't know him. I've never met him. So it'd be very difficult to say. I do know people who know him. And, and you get, again, a, a broad view. It's either, um, you know, he's a fantastic guy or, or they wouldn't want to work with him again. Uh, it, and I guess that's kind of like pretty much most people. Um, but, it, you know, I don't think his personality is important. And it's, it's his personality that got him where he was in New York real estate. You know, that's a brutal, brutal market. And he was extraordinarily successful in doing that. And you have to be brash um, and larger than life and all the rest of the things that people denigrate him for. Um, but I think that's really irrelevant. Uh, you know, it, it did him a disservice, I think. You know, it made him very easy to, to dislike, um, which probably cost him the, um, the second election. You know, I think if he was a less divisive character, I think he probably still would have, he would have got a second term. But that divisiveness is probably what won him the first term. Yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? It's complex. Um, but then talking about kind of his divisiveness and what appeals, what do you think it is about Trump that appeals to his base? You thought he was on course to win a landslide for the second election. So obviously he was doing something right, even though the media thought he was doing something, almost everything wrong. Well, I think he put America first and, and he made it quite, you know, it wasn't an original slogan, make America great again, but he certainly, he certainly put America at the forefront. And he said, you know, I was elected president of America, not president of the world. So therefore I'll put America first. And that's what appeals with American people. You know, if Boris Johnson stood up, for example, and said, I'm gonna put Britain first, I think he'd probably be applauded. You know, it, it, you should be doing that. If you're elected as a, a leader of your country, then surely your country comes first. So I think that was probably what made him um, popular. I think he appealed a lot to the working class um, voters, you know, a lot, a lot that would be traditional Democrats or labor voters. Um, so I think he, he won quite big there. Um, and I think he, people saw that actually under his um, presidency, the economy got better. Um, uh, the, the poverty gap actually, actually narrowed. He lifted more people out of poverty, um, which would his Hispanic vote went up, his, um, his, uh, his share of the black vote went up. So evidently he was doing something quite right. Um, and you mentioned, you know, about, um, about what I admire about him. I think you have to remember this guy's, what is he now, 74 or something. The energy it takes to do what he did was just unbelievable. You know, I couldn't work that hard. I couldn't work that hard when I was 20, never mind when I'm 74. Um, and did he do it for the money? No. Did he do it for the prestige? Yes, I'm sure. But I did it, gen I think he did it genuinely and kept going like that because he, he loves the country. And that comes out. It comes out when he speaks. He speaks in a um, a passionate way, but in a believable way. He's a, he's a, um, a kind of an anti-politician, isn't he? Which in the end, I think, caused his downfall. Um, but I, I think it's 
you know, in politics as a whole, I think people are getting sick to death of politicians and acting like politicians. Um, and I think that's why there's there's a gap really for somebody like uh, for somebody like Donald in 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 the UK and you know probably across Europe. Do you think that Trump is establishment or anti-establishment or maybe some kind of mix of the two? That's kind of a the big question about him, I suppose. Well, it depends on who what your definition of establishment is, doesn't he? He's definitely anti-establishment if you if you look at the political hierarchy. You know, they hated him. They absolutely hated him. And, you know, the reason they went after him so much was, I think, to send a signal to anybody else like him who was trying, you know, don't even bother trying to break into our club because we're going to kill you, which which they did with him. Um, so, yeah, very much anti-establishment, I think, in, in that respect. OK, yeah. And um, you've kind of touched on this, the media you just mentioned uh, and the kind of the Washington elite. Uh, how did, let's go for the with the Washington elite first. How did they treat him when he got in and then did that change over the course of his presidency or not? Uh, I think they treated him badly when he got in and I think they they carried on treating him probably even worse as time went by. Um, you know you, you've only got to look at the disparity in reporting between um, what was going on when he was doing things and now with Biden. You know under, under uh, Donald Trump uh, they were reporting the border um, issues, crisis, whatever you want to call it. It wasn't a crisis then, it is now. But they were saying, oh, kids in cages and all the rest of it. Well, actually, the border crisis is way worse under Biden, you know, which everybody would see, but the media aren't allowed to go there. Um, and the pictures are blacked out. There's still kids in cages, far more so than there were. Um, but now it's, uh, what, are they, what did they say? They, uh, they said children are housed in soft-sided accommodation. So the media, the bias of the media is just extraordinary. You know, no one mentions the fact that Biden didn't do a press conference for 60 days. No one mentions the fact that there wasn't a State of the Union address. No one mentions the fact that the inauguration was taken, basically done behind closed doors, surrounded by 50,000 military. You know, no one mentions the fact that the Capitol building surrounded by um, razor wire and troops and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, had that been Trump in that situation, they would have been all over the place. It would have been labelled a military coup and all the rest of it. So I think if you just look at the disparity of reporting between then and now, between Trump and Biden, that gives you just an idea or a small idea of just how, you know, violent the attacks were on him and almost always false and unwarranted. You know, the whole Russian thing was completely made up, which has now been admitted. You know, it went on for two years and there was absolutely nothing. Um, they combed over his, you know, they spent, the Dems spent hundreds of millions um, investigating Trump. And they found literally nothing other than that one tape where he was on the bus 10 years ago with a grab him by the, you know, that, that famous tape they tried to bring him down with. And okay, was that a sensible thing to say? No, of course it wasn't. It was ridiculous and, and wrong. It was a private conversation and, you know, that was the worst they came up with. Um, uh, and I would venture, you know, if you if you put the resources into finding dirt on anybody in the world, you would come up with something. So he was pilloried by the media from day one, without any shadow of a doubt. And it was the the bias was was ludicrous, really, at, at times. Yeah, although it's important to say as well, there was the other there was the Fox media, which was very much like pro-Trump, and so there was this very weird. American mainstream media very much anti-Trump and then Fox media very pro-Trump. Do you think eh, it's hard to, to form an impartial view of him, I guess, after after that? 
Well, I think, you know, you, you kind of either love him or hate him. Uh, but and, and that is if you if you hate him, you'll watch CNN and then you'll get all the bad stories about him. And if you like him, you'll watch Fox and, and watch Tucker and Carson and, and, you know, and get all the nice stories about him. But isn't that the way of the media at the moment? You know, the, the media on the whole don't report facts anymore. They're almost all opinion pieces. Uh, and I think that's that's what's wrong. You know, it's very difficult to form an opinion because what happens these days is, is that you have an opinion from whatever and then you just seek out sources which confirm your opinion. Yeah, dangers of living in the Internet era, I suppose. So when you come to writing your book, then what are the key points? Because you said you wanted to kind of readdress his presidency and look at it in a more impartial way. What were the key points you wanted to discuss and explore in the book? Well, I think just looking at basically what he'd done, you know, and, and how he'd done it and what potentially could have happened if, if another president had been in. Um, and, and just trying really hard to actually get to the to the facts, which was a really difficult thing to do because the, the media reporting is so biased. You know, for every hundred articles that says Trump's, you know, the worst man alive, there might be one that says he isn't. So it is quite difficult to get a, to get an unbiased view. But, you, you know, you go through and you, and you check these things off and, and we've had the whole thing fact-checked and by independent fact-checkers rather than the, the kind of internet-y people. Um, and, uh, and this is what we came up with. And, uh, and hopefully it is an impartial look at the, the things he did well and maybe the things that he did badly or not so well. Were there particularly like parts of his legacy, for instance, for, like immigration or North Korea or maybe like sexism that you wanted to look at particularly? Yeah, it's some things are important and, and some things less so, you know, so for, you have to address the sexism thing. But, you know, it, it's, it's very easily dismissed quite early on when you realize that the uh, he, he put a woman project manager in charge of his first tower uh, in New York. And this was in the whenever it was 70s, 80s. And so you can't really claim he's sexist when he does things like that. You know, and then there's, and there's dozens of stories around like that. And of course, you're always going to get women that have worked for him that says he did this or he did that. Um, maybe they're true, maybe they're not. I've no idea. But when you look again, past the stories and the hearsay and you just look at the factual evidence you know if he was sexist would he put a woman in charge of building his first ma massive project well no of course he wouldn't because he wouldn't think intrinsically he wouldn't think that a woman could do the job but what he does he employs people like any businessman does really on a, on a meritocracy who's the best person for the job and you employ them and it doesn't matter if they're black or white or chinese or a woman or a man or a trans you know whatever it is you just employ the best person for the job because that's what you do as a business person. So things like that were very easily dismissed. Uh, North Korea, again, you could look at that and go, well, you know, were there problems beforehand? Yes, massively. Um, has there been any problems since? No, none. Uh, you know, did he have the guts to actually go and uh, go and talk with the guy? You know, he did. Did they have a, a reasonable relationship? Yes. Did he keep uh, Kim Jong-un in the box for those four years? Yes. Did King John want to work with him? Yes. You know, so there's, there's a lot of things that were done that you can point to that actually, factually, you can say, no, he did a good job. And then, of course, you get the far more complex ones, you know, Afghanistan and Syria and, um, uh, and things like that, which are enormously complex problems. Um, but if you come off a premise that, you know, he's the president of America and his job is to save American lives by pulling troops out of these countries, 
he probably has saved American lives. You could also make the counter argument, of course, oh, well, it's a preemptive strikes. And, you know, if we left people in there, then they could prevent a strike on America in the future. But it's, as I say, a lot more complex question and a lot more nuanced. Um, the thing for me that he that he, he got right, and I think he saw more than anybody else, was the whole China issue. You know, he saw that a long time before. Uh, now it's kind of, you know, at the end of his presidency, people will say, you know, we're recognizing the uh, the genocide that's going on over there. Um, and he's been banging on about it for ages. So I think that was probably one of the most impressive things, actually, and, and potentially what could have saved America um, in terms of, we use the word Chinese infiltration. But I, don't, I don't think it's an exaggeration. You know, there, there is and there has been found out to be, you know, CCP people at fairly high levels of government. And so he knew that and, and saw that. Um, and then, of course, let's not forget the uh, Nobel Peace Prizes and the uh, that he was um, nominated for and the peace treaties that they negotiated in the Middle East. These are all huge things. You know, if Obama had, imagine, let's, let's talk about media bias. Imagine if Obama had walked on his own into the military zone in North Korea and managed to keep uh, Kim Jong-un in his box for four years. No, you know, no strikes, no nothing. Imagine if uh, he'd negotiated five um, peace agreements in the Middle East. Imagine he'd pulled the troops out of Afghanistan and Syria. If you'd have done, if if Obama had done what Trump had done, he would have been lauded as the greatest president, you know, of all time. They would have been all over him. Um, but because Trump did it, it doesn't even get a mention. How do you think that being a businessman impacted his approach to those big issues? Do you think that made him more effective at getting stuff done than his predecessors? Yes, on the whole, I think because, you know, all the predecessors, obviously, they're politicians, and so they'll do things in a political way. I think Trump came at it just with a different angle, literally with, a, you know, a different, he knows how to negotiate deals, of course he does. Um, and he knew, for example, with North Korea, he knew that America's, you know, a million times more powerful than North Korea. Um, and so when he went and said, look, you know, I forget what it was, but he said to, you know, King, King John, we better keep you know, not fire anything on the US because believe me, we've got, my, we've got a bigger button than his and it works. Um, it was very much a threat. But if he was a politician, he probably wouldn't have done it like that. They still would have been talking around the houses for the next 20 years about things. So I think the fact that he came out with a different perspective meant that he achieved things that probably other politicians wouldn't have done. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. And um, do you think what, in your opinion, were his biggest successes or his biggest success and biggest failure during his time as president? Yeah, just go back. I mean, you've got to think that the peace agreements in the Middle East, mm -hmm. that's huge. You know, that really is an enormous thing that he doesn't get any credit for whatsoever. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. Identifying the threat from China, I think, as, as I've said before. The, the biggest mistakes, well, You've got to say it was uh, it was towards the end. You know, the I, I believe that the election was fixed. I think had he had he handled that whole thing with more political nous rather than a you know a, a kind of K, um, a cornered lion approach, I think maybe maybe things could have come out slightly differently. Um, and I and because I, I think the. The whole thing, you know, the um, they call it an insurrection, and it really was. If it was an insurrection, it was the weakest and most pathetic insurrection in, in, in world history. I think it was just ludicrous and so obviously staged. But I think 
he enabled that to happen by inviting the huge um, the huge rally to come down to uh, the Capitol building. And, and I know he said, you know, let's march peacefully down to the Capitol building. But I think that was his biggest mistake. You know, I saw as soon as people started wandering in the Capitol building, and that's it, it's all over. And to be fair, it probably was all over by then, but there was still, you know, a half a chance that the, um, the, the uh, they could have questioned the Electoral College. But after that, th there was no going back. Do you not think it was his response to COVID which sunk his election bids? No, I don't think so. I mean, as he said, you know, the uh, what were they? They were projecting that two million people were going to die in the US of COVID, and at the time he said it, there was only two hundred thousand. And so, and what he said was, well, I must have done well. And you can't argue with that. This is what I like about you know the the whole businessman logic. You've told me my worst case is two. If I don't do anything, it's going to be two million, and I've done something, and it's two hundred thousand. Therefore, I've succeeded. You know, his response to COVID, if you want to get into, um, you know, the way the political system works in America, the federal government actually is very limited in power. It's the states actually which dictate what can be done on a, on a statewide level. So the, the federal government obviously can recommend what it wants and all the rest of it, but it's the states that will do what they want, which is why now you have, you know, Florida that's completely opened up and, and, uh, and Texas and, and latterly South Dakota was always open. Um, so he had a limited, uh, a limited remit, really. The vaccine thing, you know, that if, if we're going to laud, you know, the politicians in the UK who got the vaccine out quickly, well, you could equally apply the same logic to Trump. Now, you know, whatever your views on the vaccines are, it doesn't really matter. But if, we, if we're just judging people in the same ways, then you must laud them for that as well, because they did exactly the same thing. Um, and now more people have been vaccinated. So if you use that as a measure of success, he was successful in that as well. Um, so, no, I don't, I think without COVID, there wouldn't have been, um, there wouldn't have been so many mail-in voters and there, the, the legislation wouldn't have been changed to allow the, the mail-in voting. So without COVID, I think there wouldn't have been so much of that. And if there wasn't so much mail-in voting, then Biden would never have won. So in, in a way, COVID cost in the election, but not in the way that you mean. Yeah. So post-election then, what do you think the future holds for Trump now? What do you think he's going to get up to in his post-presidency? Do you think he's still going to be political? I imagine he's got a taste for it now. Yeah, I think so. And and I, you know, you just look at photos and videos of him now. I think he's going to enjoy himself far more than when he was president. Um, I think he probably sees himself as a, as a bit of a kingmaker. So, uh, you know, he's getting ready to, um, uh, to, to prime people, I think, for the, uh, for the midterms. Which is not far away, you know. It's American politics happens quickly, doesn't it? Mm. And then, and then a run in twenty four. I don't think he'll run. I think it'll probably be DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, um, that will run in twenty four, but backed heavily by Trump. Um, and of course, with Trump, you know, if you're endorsed by him, you get all of the Trump base, but you also get the people, that, you know, I could, the, the never Trumpers. Um, so people who would never vote Trump under any circumstances whatsoever. If you have a less divisive character like a DeSantis. Um, then you pick up some of those as well. So, I, you know, I hope that uh, that in 24, that, uh, that you'll have a Republican presidency. But what damage is done in the meantime, I've no idea. I mean, do you not, do you not think Don Jr. is not being groomed to take over his dad's mantle? No, I don't think so. I think where, what really cost Trump was, ironically, was that he wasn't a politician. Uh, you know, he hadn't had 30 years, 40 years of building up a network of people that he knows he can trust within politics, you know, your allies, what people, enemies to look out for and all the rest of it. So he was kind of very much learning as he went. Um, and so that was 
I think probably what caused it was a lack of political nous, which cost him in the end. Um, and and whether the uh, you know whether the kids would want to go and do that, um, I don't know. You know, I, I've got no mm. idea. But I, I would think that a you know a heavyweight politician backed by Trump with the right ideas, like a DeSantis, um, I think probably is far more likely. Yeah, I can imagine politics is a bit of a bear pit, uh, both here and across the pond. Um, then I just kind of wanted to finish off by touching on what do you think uh, is Trump's legacy will be? Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, hopefully when people read the book, at least they'll be slightly more um, or slightly less biased. You know, they'll be able to see that there was actually a lot of good in there. And I think probably once the abrasiveness of the personality or the memories of the abrasiveness of the personality go away, then hopefully he'll be judged more on results. I think it probably a lot depends on what happens over the course of the next three or four years with, with Biden and, and obviously as will be Harris, um, as to which way the country goes. I, I think he'll be remembered fondly. And I, and I think fondly, is that the right word? Mm, probably not. No, probably remembered, I think, with a, with a degree of respect for what he managed to achieve which bear in mind on any personal level is extraordinary. You know, to go from never having a political career to deciding you're going to run at the age of 70 something and win. You know, it's just, it's just on a personal level, whatever you think of him is, is an extraordinary accomplishment. Um, and then, like I say, depend what, depends what we'll see over the course of the next four years. Um, I think he probably remembered as the person that showed that politics could be done in a different way. And I think that's a good thing. And I think he also probably ignited something in younger people to, to, to like go down the Republican route, you know, to see that actually it's fine to be patriotic. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean you're racist. It doesn't mean that you're xenophobic or whatever, but you just, you know, if we, ha if we have countries, then surely you should have a right to stand up for it. Same, same as having borders, you know, if you, if you haven't got borders, you haven't got a country anymore, have you? So, um, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I think it, it will be remembered, I think, as a pivotal point in American political history. Yeah, well, I think that's a really nice uh, place to end the podcast. So, Simon, thank you so much for appearing. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If hearing Simon's words have piqued your interest, then why not head to bitebackpublishing.com and take a look at his book, Trump a Hidden Halo. It's out now and available from all good bookshops. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.